Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the Internet. Nearer to normal service restored this week. We're still missing a vital cog in our machine, our director, and we wish him a speedy return, not just to full health, but to his place here on the mother of all talk shows. I've even got my cup and my cup of tea. We'll be talking about British politics, American politics, and world politics in the midst of a pandemic. Not just the nuts and bolts of who's dying where, at what rate, but what all this means for how we got here and where we're likely to go after this is over. And I think that is a big and fascinating subject indeed. But let's start with the British political scene. I'm only half joking when I say that birds are already trying to nest in Sir Keir Starmer, the multi-millionaire, former public prosecutor, Queen's Counsel, at North London anti-Brexit man who has now been elected by a landslide as the new leader of the Labour Party. The first thing I need to say is, I told you so. I told you this was going to happen. I told you that not allowing Ian Lavery or Richard Bergen to run for leader of the Labour Party was a disastrous error. I told you that putting up a schoolgirl, Rebecca Long Bailey, as the single left-wing candidate was a mistake of gargantuan proportions. I told you that if Keir Starmer got it, it would be the return of Tony Blair. This is Tony Blair 2.0. If you look at the uh, shadow cabinet that is now emerging, I'll be getting the names, I hope, put on my desk in the course of the show. But if I just glance at the top line of who has been kicked out and who has been promoted, I can certainly say one thing, and that is that Keir Starmer is more decisive as a leader than Jeremy Corbyn ever was, unfortunately, in the reverse direction. Jeremy Corbyn didn't purge anybody, even when they were sticking knives in his back. Instead of purging them, he promoted them. Jeremy Corbyn never booted anybody out. He promoted the people who hated him most. In fact, the people he booted out were his actual friends, his closest allies, uh, people like Chris Williamson, the erstwhile member of parliament for Derby. No chance whatsoever of Keir Starmer making that mistake. He's following the John McTernan rules of punishing the loser. At the time of my coming on set, I've no idea if Rebecca Long Bailey is going to be given 
anything at all in the shadow cabinet, but if she is, it's already clear it's going to be vanishingly, humiliatingly small beer. John Landsman, her campaign manager, and the luxury communists have already prostrated themselves at the feet of Sirkia. Arise, they say, Sirkia. Even NATO Trotskyite Paul Mason and uh, pirouetting Nureyev Owen Jones have slavishly adhered themselves to Sir Keir Starmer's backside. Question is, where is it headed? Is Keir Starmer capable of leading Labour back to power? That's in fact the context of our first poll. Will Sir Keir Starmer lead Labour to power? A, yes, B, no. I believe absolutely no, and for the following reasons. First of all, Sir Keir Starmer is a man who doesn't even speak the language of the millions of working class people who abandoned Labour on the Red Wall and behind the Red Wall, but also here in London. He doesn't even speak their language. He doesn't pretend to understand what they are talking about. He is a smug, cosmopolitan, upper class, exceedingly rich, fabulously educated elitist. He has nothing in common with the people that Labour need to win back. Secondly, he is literally the architect of the very policy which caused Labour's defenestration just last December. He is the man who insisted upon, more than anyone else, a people's vote, a second referendum to force the 17.4 million Brexiteers to do it all again, no doubt in the teeth of a state-sponsored, billionaire-financed propaganda campaign in the hope that they would vote a different way the second time. Such contempt for democracy, such contempt for the decent patriotic views of millions of people in this country renders him useless in actually winning people back. He'll no doubt be popular amongst the Guardianistas. Indeed, the Guardian's already wetting itself with delight at this new era. So is Tony Blair, so is Margaret Hodge, so is Wes Streeting, so is Jess Phillips, all the Chamber of Horrors who made Corbyn's life such a misery for the last four and a half years. Uh, their knees are knocking together with delight at the idea that Starmer has won so handsomely with 57% of the vote. Rebecca Long-Bailey limping in in second with 27% of the vote. Yes, that's right. What a pick. What a pick by Landsman, by momentum, by the left. And I'm not being wise after the event. I told them and I told you over and over again in real time, this would happen. Just as I predicted the result of the general election, just as I predicted the result of the Brexit referendum, of Trump's election and so on. I'm glad you're listening. We need to get more people to pay more attention. Now, talking of big palookas, what about Joe Biden? 
Have you ever seen anything more pitiful? He can scarcely say his name into the basement television camera that he's got rigged up in his isolation. He's demanding that the people in various states on Tuesday come out and vote in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic when they're not supposed to be within two meters of each other. He wants them to stand in a line thousands long in order to vote for him. Uh, but he also says that the Democrats will have to have a virtual convention just to save the problem of inconvenient uprisings amongst the Bernie Sanders supporters on the floor of the convention. I'll go out on a limb. I'm predicting that Joe Biden will not be the Democratic Party's candidate in November. He's not fit to be let out alone. Certainly not fit to be left babysitting your daughter, if you get my drift. He's not fit to fight Donald Trump. So at the last minute, there'll be a stand-in. Now, there are many possibilities. One of them is Hillary Clinton, but that's probably a bridge too far, a risk too far. Another, one that I identified earlier on, is the wife of President Obama, who does seem to have a good deal of popularity in the uh, United States. Michelle Obama might be appointed as the vice presidential running mate of Joe Biden, then Joe Biden's unable to actually go to the gig, and so she is elevated uh, with someone else as VP. And these are possibilities. But I'm increasingly thinking, as I said last week, that Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who's on television every single day and is doing a pretty impressive job, at least presentationally, of making his case for more resources, of condemning the federal government, and of fighting for the people of New York, which is, of course, the center, the epicenter of the American uh, epidemic, which is the epicenter now of the world pandemic. The United States may very well, in a couple of weeks, have a higher level of unemployment, 25%, as they had in the Great Depression of the 1930s. Soup kitchens, tent cities, dust bowls, all the horrors of the Great Depression may well be back in the United States very, very soon indeed. In other words, there never was a better time for a radical candidate with authenticity and with a track record for decades of fighting for the kind of changes that America is going to need, an FDR plus New Deal, there's never been a better time for Bernie Sanders. But the Democrats would rather Donald Trump won than that Bernie Sanders should be their nominee. Does that sound familiar? Because, of course, the same is true here in Britain. There's never, ever, ever been a better time for Jeremy Corbyn to lead the Labour Party with a radical program and a coruscating critique of Boris Johnson, who's looking ever more inept, bumbling, pitifully out of his depth. There's never been a better time for a radical Labour leader. So Labour chose 
a block of wood. We'll be talking, of course, about the coronavirus itself, what it's doing, and the world it's going to leave us. I myself am beginning to think that this is an epochal turn, that there will it will never be the same again after this. I know that can sound trite, it can sound also a trifle optimistic, but here's why I think so. Capitalism is actually the virus. If you think about it, what does the virus do? It parasitically attaches itself to the work being done by others. In this case, by your lungs and by your throat, your trachea, your ability to breathe, to keep a living organism alive. The parasite fixes itself to your cells and seeks to squeeze the life out of them. And it can only uh, be a matter of time, I think it's days, it might be hours, before that parasite is spitting out and infecting others to go on and to exploit still more. The parasite, the virus, knows no borders and will not accept any democratic check upon its workings, its evil doings. The parasite, the virus, has only one purpose, to parasite some more and to continue to destroy as it goes along. And I think a lot of people are at least open to, and many, many millions have already concluded, that it was globalized capitalism with its long lines of supply, its austerity politics which broke disastrously our public services, not just, by the way, our health service, though, of course, that's the most obvious frontline casualty of globalized capitalism's determined, de uh, 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 determination to destroy all that is public and to make profit from anything it can get its hands on, including much-loved public services. But it isn't just the health service. Five London bus drivers have died. Why? Because the London mayor is allowing people to pack onto a restricted number of buses unhealthily, all of them breathing their droplets at the driver of the bus who doesn't even have a mask, not even a tiny little cloth mask like this. The driver is naked, metaphorically, in the front of the bus. There are fewer buses, so more people are on them. And five London bus drivers have lost their lives in the coronavirus epidemic so far. And I've no doubt, I know from one of my friends, John Larkin, uh, that on Merseyside there are critical problems of safety uh, in the public transport uh, uh, industry with the lack, total lack, I mean, lack's not the word, the total absence of personal protective equipment. They are more interested in a different kind of PPE, the kind studied by virtually all of the top line of Sir Keir Starmer's new shadow cabinet. But it isn't also just bus drivers. Let me let you in, I hope she doesn't mind, on 
uh, a personal secret. My mother, aged almost 85, has uh, help come in, supplied by the NHS and by the, uh, the care uh, departments in, uh, in Scotland. Uh, they're very, very nice. Wonder, can't do enough for her. One is a nurse who helps her with various uh, ailments that an 85-year-old almost routinely has, helps her on with her stockings and so on. Uh, and the others come and do a bit of cleaning. But my mother's just cancelled them. Yes, these wonderful ladies that come in to help her, she's told them, don't come, please, until after this emergency is over. Why? Because not a single one of the social care staff visiting my mother has as much as a rubber glove, has as much as a wee cloth mask to put on their face, or has been tested to see if they're taking the coronavirus round all the old people whose houses they are visiting and to whom they are attending most religiously. Now, only capitalism could produce a society like that. Atomized, devastated, privatized, where all that is public is profaned and all that is solid is not just melting into air, but being sold. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Off. I'm actually giggling coyly at my wife all day, every day, and I haven't let my appearance slip. So I suppose I'm the kind of conservative person that the Malaysian government was aiming at, which is fitting, therefore, that our next guest, Dominique Samuels, is a political commentator, but is president of Orthodox Conservatives. And she joins us now by Skype. Dominique, it's a real pleasure to see you. Thank you very much indeed. I had a look at your output. Uh, surprisingly, I agreed with some of it. Uh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a social conservative with a small C, uh, and, uh, but not a political conservative with a big C. So let, let's start off by asking you how you think the Conservative government has handled, is handling, uh, this pandemic, this crisis. I'll tell you why I ask, because in the opinion poll published today, support for the government's handling has literally halved from last week, which would seem to suggest that people are viewing things 
rather differently now. How do you view them? Well, um, I think that the support for the government has halved because of the lockdown and the situation that has been imposed on everyone for starters. And it might be a little bit to do with how the police are behaving. But just um, to start with the government's response to the crisis, I do think that the government was slow to start with the crisis. Um, there was obviously the theory of herd immunity kind of floating around and not a lot of people were happy with that. Um, I think because we've been kind of slow to take the crisis seriously, um, we have seen, you know, the rate of infection skyrocket in many ways. Um, but I think what the government is doing now to tackle the coronavirus is sensible. There is a question of were they a bit slow to act, but I'm glad that we are in lockdown now and I'm glad that rules are starting to be imposed and I'm glad that businesses and those that aren't able to work at the moment are getting the support that they're due. Well, uh, I take your point that uh, there will be people in the negative column uh, in this opinion poll today uh, who think the government hasn't gone nearly far enough and people who think the government has gone far too far. Uh, yeah, but I think I think it's I think it's easy to say that the government hasn't gone far enough. But um, if you look back to the reasons that Boris gave for not wanting to close schools and impose a lockdown straight away, it's because people would eventually get fed up with it. And I think there was also um, a scientific reason of when the virus would actually peak. And if we did we did it too early, then it would peak when we've all been let out again. So then it would essentially be a second wave of the coronavirus spreading at exponential rates and obviously the NHS being burdened with it. But if you look at the, what's going on now, people are already getting sick of being basically forced into flipping house arrest, locked into their houses, and the police are taking their newfound powers to some real ridiculous extremes. So you can well, kind how, of understand. How so, how so Dominique? Uh, as I said, Earlier, if you were listening, I took my little boy out for his daily exercise today, but we had to turn back uh, because the normally absolutely open space on which we exercise each day was like, mm -hmm. a, like a holiday resort. Uh, it was full of people and not a police officer in sight. Uh, I'm looking at the scenes every day on social media in various mm -hmm. places. I, I, I don't think the police can be accused of behaving in a draconian way at all. As a matter of fact, I don't think this lockdown is being properly implemented. Well, I do take that point, but some of the examples I've seen have been encouraging neighbours to report um, their neighbours for going out when they shouldn't like really be going now. I've had people telling me that they've been stopped by the police um, asking them where they're going. I've seen actual videos of that as well, telling people to get out of their car and walk back home because they've been spotted in a car with more than two people. Um, I've seen the government apparently suggesting that we won't even be allowed to go out to exercise anymore because some people aren't following the rules. I do think that whilst it's essential that we are on lockdown, there's only so much that you can impose on people because at the end of the day we are free human beings we do want to go outside you know it, we're in summer right now so well, I, I think mean it's true that we're free to uh, kill ourselves and uh, and kill other people i heard all these arguments uh, long before you were born when we introduced seat belts in cars for example 
there were all kinds of people on the right of politics, mainly, saying... Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that it's free, not... I'm, I should be free not to wear a seatbelt. But sometimes the state has to act, doesn't it? Yeah, I do think sometimes the state has to act, but I also think there's the reality of whether or not people are going to listen to those rules no matter how much you kind of impose them and my issue is how far do we actually go i agree with the lockdown and i obviously do think that some people are really selfish considering the most vulnerable who can be essentially killed by the virus but i just don't know if having drones flying outside people's houses spying on people and urging neighbors to report each other is bodes well for the future because well, we are in a yeah, crisis right now, but course, we won't be uh, forever. Yeah, I mean, of course, I, I hear what you say on that. But let's look at Italy, for example. You, you, you mm -hmm. may have just heard our news bulletin. The death yeah. rates in Italy are falling. The death rates in Spain are falling. The death rates in France are falling. The death rates in Britain are continuing to increase. And that seems to me uh, to go to two points. First of all, we did not lock people down early enough. And secondly, it's not a real lockdown. It's a bit like the war on drugs. I, I keep hearing people say to me, the war on drugs is a failure. There's never been a war on drugs. If there had been a war on drugs, you might have been able to say it was a failure, but it never actually happened. And the same with this lockdown. Heathrow Airport, I know because I live under the flight path, is uh, chock-a-block with arriving I, passengers. I, I agree with you there. I, I don't from, think it makes sense. They're coming from Milan. They're coming from uh, places that are uh, amongst the most infected places on the earth. They're not tested when they arrive, and they immediately mm -hmm. go out into the publication, into the, the population. What kind of a lockdown is that? I actually completely agree with you on that. I think I don't really see the point of an actual lockdown if people are still being able to swan in and out of the country. It doesn't really make sense. I don't really know why we haven't actually stopped flights from these places. It doesn't really make sense. I heard in the news recently that um, Priti Patel has actually been pushing for that, but I don't think the Prime Minister wants to go ahead with Where closing is the borders. She? I actually have not set eyes on her for weeks. Yeah, neither have I, to be fair. I've is, only seen the odd article. Is she being locked away for some reason? Uh, anyway, look, um, the, the overarching point is, my, is the ideological one that I would like to uh, tease into this argument. Um, the libertarians uh, believe uh, that uh, every man is an island. Uh, despite John Donne telling us centuries ago that no man was an island. Some people believe there is no such thing as society. Even Boris Johnson conceded this week uh, that there is. Mm -hmm. There are people who believe they have the absolute freedom to act as they please. And there are other people who believe uh, that we need to put the public good, the common good, before personal freedom. Does your organization have a view on these things? Because I think once this is all over, Dominique, this is going to be the number one question. What kind of society do we want? Do we want mm -hmm. the invisible hand of the free market determine everything? Do we want this private good uh, uh, and public bad uh, attitude? Do we want this libertarian idea of individual freedom trumping uh, the common good and the public interest. 
Well, it's actually really interesting that you say that because just recently, um, our head of ideology, ide ideology and philosophy actually published an article on this on our website. And basically, it talked about how the very... The central point of libertarianism, which is freedom, has kind of come into question because of this virus, because we've seen the government act in ways that, you know, the neoliberals and the libertarians are kind of horrified that I've already seen them kind of their eyes bulging out of their heads because of how much the government is spending and also because of how this lockdown is being conducted. I think there is definitely room for conversation about how our society is governed. I'm personally not a libertarian or a neoliberal. I don't subscribe to those beliefs. And I think that there's endless proof that we do live in a society and that we are a community and that we owe it to each other to look after each other and to be less individualistic, which is what my organisation, Orthodox Conservatives, is about. So I'm kind of surprised about this, but I would, I would agree with you on that point. Well, uh, uh, what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like that, Dominique? How did you end up as a Conservative? Well, I think that uh, I'd just like to highlight first and foremost that I'm a philosophical conservative first and um, a political conservative second, simply because I feel like the Conservative Party most closely aligns with my beliefs. And there isn't a party out there at the moment in Britain that reflects my beliefs in such a way. But what Orthodox Conservatives is about is trying to shape the Conservative Party and mould it to go in a new direction. Because I personally believe that too long the party's been dominated by this neoliberal consensus that's essentially, we believe, stopped working and it's time for a new direction to go in. So hopefully we'll be successful in doing that. Well, you've certainly done your organisation a lot of good tonight. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. And now, will Sir Keir Starmer lead Labour to power? A, yes, 17%, down one. B, no, 83%, up one. 1,543 votes in so far. You've got until nine o'clock on my Twitter feed to cast your vote. Now, let's take a break just for a second. Radio Sputnik. We call Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan the most disruptive radio show in America. It's a great show and we have a lot of fun. We come to you live from Washington, D.C. every Monday through Friday morning. What I like best is that we bring in experts from all over the world. From Barcelona, from Egypt, from Seoul, South Korea. From Newark, New Jersey. We try to bring people great guests, great calls from our listeners, and of course, stupid jokes. And we do it with two hosts that have very different viewpoints. Now, here's the thing, Garland. A lot of people would think you and I would just argue. I mean, I'm a Republican Trump supporter. And, of course, I am a progressive Democrat Bernie Sanders supporter. The surprising thing is how much we actually agree on. And you won't be surprised because you're going to find out just how much you agree and just how much you enjoy this show. The mother of all talk shows. Join our faculty of legends, contributors, and callers. Everyone is welcome. Now, this is the spot on the show when we look back at this week in history, the things that shaped our times for good or ill. On this day in 1954, don't tell the wife, but it was the year I was born. The man who would be king of music, Elvis Presley, recorded his debut single, That's All Right. 
And it was uh, for him and for many, many millions of us around the world. This was uh, recorded on Sun Records. I continue to believe that Elvis's work on Sun Records was better uh, than his uh, later work. I know that's a cliche. I preferred his earlier work. But if you've never listened to Elvis's album on Sun Records, on which, uh, from which That's All Right Mama was taken as a single, I really commend it to you. A year later, uh, on this day, that's 1955, therefore, uh, Anthony Eden replaced Winston Churchill as Prime Minister, which means I was born when Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister, as I say, don't tell the wife. Uh, that wasn't to end, though, so well. Uh, Anthony Eden was forced to resign over the debacle of British forces with French and Israeli invading Egypt to seize the Suez Canal. They were quickly forced to pull out after resistance from the Egyptians and intercession by the United States. Possibly the last time the United States said no to a foreign invasion and intervention. Uh, and uh, uh, Lady Eden uh, talked about how that year the Suez Canal flowed through her drawing room. And it was on this day, April 5, in 1963, that the Beatles received their first silver disc for Please, Please Me. And they did, for sure. In 1968, a day after the assassination of Martin Luther King, more than 100 major cities in the US were rocked by an escalation in the race riots. At least 19 people died in the arson looting and shootings provoked by the assassination. The violence did not abate until April 14th. In 1976, on this day, British politics was turned on its head when Harold Wilson unexpectedly resigned and made way for an older man, James Callaghan, who took over as Prime Minister. I knew them both well. And it was on this day in 1982 when Margaret Thatcher dispatched aircraft carriers, Invincible and Hermes, to the Falkland Islands from their base in Portsmouth in what would become the Falklands War. And a lot of people left their guts on Goose Green to see Mrs. Thatcher re-elected in 1983. It's also on this day in 1976 that the billionaire and recluse Howard Hughes died. He died on a medical flight from Mexico, taking him to Houston for treatment. He was so wizened and changed after 20 years of seclusion that the FBI had to take fingerprints to confirm it was him. He'd be at home actually nowadays, wouldn't he, with the old rubber gloves and constantly washing your hands. Uh, and in 1994 on this day, the rock star Kurt Cobain committed suicide, a big loss actually. Later in the week on April 9th, uh, more than 100 pickets were arrested during violent clashes with police outside two working coal pits in Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire in the UK in the middle of the year-long miners' strike. It was also on April 9th in 2003 that the massive statue of Saddam Hussein was pulled down in the main square in Baghdad as US tanks rolled into the heart of the Iraqi capital. How did that work out? <clears throat> on the 10th of April in 1998, the Northern Ireland peace deal was clinched. The accord, dubbed the Good Friday Agreement, at least by Catholics, uh, was reached after nearly two years of talks and 30 years of conflict. 
I always hear the unionists describing it as the Belfast Agreement rather than the Good Friday Agreement, almost like they didn't love Jesus like the rest of us. Uh, negotiations on the final day dragged on more than 17 hours after the deadline for an agreement passed. And uh, good work by Tony Blair would be churlish of me not to say so. On April 12, 1961, the Soviet Union, as was, beat the USA in the race to get the first man into space. He was Major Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin, who was fired from the Baikonur launch pad in Kazakhstan, and now an independent state, of course, in Soviet Central Asia, in the spacecraft Vostok, which means East. Major Gagarin orbited the Earth for 108 minutes, traveling at more than 17,000 miles per hour. That's 27,000 kilometers per hour before landing at an undisclosed location. The USSR notched up a series of space firsts, beginning with the launch of the world's first man-made satellite, Sputnik, in 1957. Later that year, they sent a dog called Laika into space. And of course, Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman cosmonaut in 1963 and is still alive and is still a member of parliament, a member of the Duma in Russia. And two years later, so that's 65, Alexei Leonov became the first man to perform a space walk. And that was the week that was in a momentous seven days. Let's take some calls. Betty is in London. Let's hear from her. Betty, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Nice to hear from you. Go ahead. Well, uh, you asked me questions. No, <laughs> I know my family are going to be freaked out that I'm on this because I'm becoming a bit of a serial telephone or radio show since I've been in self-isolation. Well, you've so never spoken to a bigger audience than this. There's between yeah. half a million and one million people all <laughs> over the world listening to you, so don't be nervous or anything. No, of course not. So here I am in central London. I live in just off Wardour Street. And uh, for the second week, I tried to clap. And last week, there was um, a, a solo guy in a flat next door. I met him. Well, I put my head out the window, and there was no one this week. Well, every, I'll I, tell you what, my street, every person in my street was out. And not just clapping, but cheering, some of them letting off fireworks and so on. Wardour Street, I used to live around there myself. Betty, uh, Wardour Street's a bit of a funny area. It is, but I do love Soho because I've been here on and off for 35 years. Yeah, I love I it too, to, yeah. I, I love it too. Old, yeah, I have one of those old tenancies. And my landlord now owns most of central London, Chinatown, everywhere. Uh, I've had a, bit, a few rucks with them, but we're okay now. And, um, yeah, it's an odd place, but I like it for its quirky villageness rather than Absolutely, its Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's probably... First of all, there's probably not a lot of people at home living there right now in this period of lockdown, in my experience. Uh, and uh, it's probably got the least uh, likely a group of applauders of any other part of London. As far as I know, the applause is getting bigger. It was bigger on Thursday than it was the previous Thursday, and it's going to be bigger this Thursday. People are so in love. People are so in love, Betty, with the... National Health Service. I am in love. They saved my life. They killed my son's father 15 years ago and tried to cover it up. Um, but they saved my life 
a few years ago. So you're always on a continual roundabout with the NHS. But the idea is brilliant and the staff are brilliant. But I think the clap, and this is going to get me in trouble, is starting to patronise them. I don't want Prince Charles to say, my heart goes out to you. I want Prince Charles to say, my wallet goes out to you. I'm going to give you some of the Dutch seats. Well, I, I do I think, think that that's going to become a big issue, Betty, not Prince Charles uh, necessarily, but what's going to become a big issue is, well, if we're clapping uh, these uh, people, why aren't we paying them properly? Uh, why aren't we equipping them properly? Uh, why aren't we making their work safer and better properly? And why aren't they living in decent key workers' flats? Why aren't they earning more than As they used to be once upon a time, single nurses in the past had nursing accommodation. Where is it now? I remember when they had key worker flats as well. There's yeah. nothing now. And I'm probably going to get clapped and, st and stuck in the towers for saying what I said. But I just feel it's, it's just not enough to clap. And it's just not oh, enough. No. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, we have I'm to clap because we have to show the power that we love this institution, uh, warts and all. They didn't do a great job with my late father either, Betty. Uh, but they've done a lot. Uh, better delivering my many children and I hope they will do again in just a couple of months time but the we need to show the power and the media uh, that we love this institution and that we will not tolerate any further uh, uh, privatization of it any further exploitation of its workforce in fact we're demanding the renationalization of the National Health Service taking back from the privateers that which has been given to them. Cancelling the PFI uh, yoke albatross of debt. Cancelling it. They've had enough uh, from us. And I've got a couple more demands, Betty. Let me uh, tell you uh, what they are. I say that the student loans of every nurse in Britain should be immediately cancelled by the British government as a sign of goodwill. What do you think of that? I think a lot of that, but I also don't think medical students should be charged loans or fees either. Although they do make, again, there's a huge pecking order. I was in hospital for a very long time a few years ago, and the nurses are at the bottom of the pecking order. Actually, no. The Eastern European nursing assistants, who are very capable and very lovely, are at the actual very, very bottom, and they won't be around anymore. But... Yeah, there's a huge pecking order, but I still don't think anyone studying medicine should have to pay for their education. And with you so on that, let's extend my demand, not just from nurses, but to all students uh, that go on to work in the National Health Service. They should be working in the National Health Service, of course, not with the public training them and then the uh, best of them siphoned off to the private medis medical uh, uh, um, um, sector. Now, uh, let's close this, Betty, with this point. I ask you to reflect on it. The actor who plays a nurse in the BBC series Casualty is being paid 15 times a year more what an actual nurse in the NHS is. Oh, it's ridiculous. Betty, and thank you. Everyone in paid a fortune, aren't they? Yeah, it's wonderful to hear from you. Say hi to so to Soho for me. Uh, let's go to Flo in Fife on the issue of COVID-19. Go ahead, Flo. Hi there. 
Gordon. Yeah. Job, sorry. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to raise the topic of uh, how the old media is dealing with us, in particular, like David Icke spreading 5G, being responsible for coronavirus and connected yeah, to and stuff yeah. like that. They're maniacs, these uh, people. Oh, absolute yes. maniacs. People are um, burning well, down 5G towers. I mean, how yeah, stupid and, and ignorant can you be? There's people dropping like dead with 5G all over the... Uh, with the co coronavirus all over the world? They've never heard of 5G. Don't have 5G. It's just ridiculous yeah. nonsense. Well, this has been pressed on for a while. It's been, uh, I think, uh, really the alternative media are going to need to be held to account. Us. Uh, Ike himself has over quarter a million subscribers on his Twitter account alone. So mm. he's got a bigger reach than most mainstream media platforms at the moment. Well, I never look at them. Uh, I've never looked at them since he said that the Duke of Edinburgh was a shape-shifting lizard. Yeah, well, unfortunately, people are beginning to take this guy really seriously. And mm. his presence is quite massive at the moment online. Um, it's been bolstered by other people like uh, Sean Atwood, uh, James English and stuff like this as well. No, uh, you can't put James English in that, uh, in that boat, surely. The Cabinet Office uh, said they were going to issue fines to mainstream media outlets for doing this, so I think it's about time the Cabinet Office took their fingers out their bums and started doing something about the alternative media as well, because well, Twitter's reporting uh, uh, protocols are not sufficient to stop this nonsense. Well, uh, uh, of course, uh, fake news, wherever it comes from, is to be deplored, but the best enemy of fake news is real news. Uh, the best enemy uh, of uh, conspiracy theorists like Ike and co, uh, is uh, the Moats, the mother of all talk shows. This is an ideological battle, not be solved uh, by handing out fines, uh, Flo, because uh, you that, know, I'm speaking as someone, for example, uh, who caused uh, talk radio, as was, uh, to uh, receive a massive fine because I questioned the veracity of the state narrative on the Scripple affair. We, this is ridiculous. You must allow a thousand flowers to bloom and you must praise the flowers that grow and you must uh, defeat the weeds. And the best way to defeat the weeds is to see that the flowers are properly tended, properly watered and fed. Flo, thank you. I wasn't expecting your voice when I saw your name was Flo, but thanks for the call. Adil is in Oregon. In the United States, let's hear from yeah. him. Adil, go ahead. Uh, hello, Mr. Galloway. Uh, I just wanted to um, start off by mentioning a really great uh, op-ed written by uh, Professor Alex DeWall at the Boston Review. Um, and he, he submitted uh, five uh, overarching themes that are happening right now. And I just want to mention them really briefly. Um, number one, he said, this is a situation where science is contending with fatalism. Uh, number two, where the germ theory of diseases is disputing with ecological theories, and where militarized, centralized bureaucracy is sparring with liberal capitalism. This is the China, referring to China versus the U.S. responses. Number four, where an anthropocentric epidemic narrative promises to return to life as normal. And number five, an open democratic society questions its limits. So these are five very interesting um, themes that seem to be appearing now uh, all over the world. And there's a lot of, there's a discussion now or, or questions about what does a post-COVID world look like? And I think you kind of 
touched on that uh, in your discussion uh, earlier with Dominique. And I, I think that this is a very important question, although I do not agree with um, the, the idea that this means that uh, a socialist system should substitute a free market-based world. Um, I, I have very serious uh, uh, arguments and, and uh, uh, doubts about this. However, I do believe that in the case of the U.S., there are certain things that need to be contended with. Uh, first of all, we have learned now with this epidemic that there is a need for uh, some form of hospital records system, national hospital records system, where we understand what hospitals have in terms of equipments and the kind of provision of health care that they're able to deliver to all inhabitants all over the United States. This is a big country. Yeah, but how can uh, you do that two, with, uh, with, when the private sector runs the health care system in your country? Well, I, I, I think we need to just first start, let's just start with a record system. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, data should be, uh, you know, collected. The centralization of data collection should happen. I think yeah, you can but, do that but, without but any... Ideal, my point is this, that a, a hospital in the United States or an insurance company that runs hospitals in the United States, its priority is a fiduciary one uh, to return to its shareholders the maximum rate of profit. It is not to have enough masks or ventilators in the event that an epidemic will come along. Do you see my point? That's the difference yeah, I, I, between I, I, a, 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 a centralized okay. command uh, economy, a socialist economy, and a private uh, capitalist economy. A, you cannot I, I, I force agree. a capitalist to lay in enough ventilators, which he might never have to use, uh, just in case, you can't force them to do that because that will reduce their profit. No, I agree with that. I, I'm, you see, and this is the thing: is I, I'm 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 speaking about just practical initial steps that can be taken moving forward. I am not trying to. I, I don't think this idea that we should try to uh, force some sort of ideological contest in this discussion. I don't think that's feasible. I don't think that's practical. Uh, you know, and and. I think it's, 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 in, it's ineluctable. It's staring you in the face. China can, well, order. China can order people to produce things. China can order people to have enough stock of things. The United States cannot. And that's, no, why, I, you, I, that's why you're the epicenter and why you're going to have 1930s levels of unemployment in a couple of weeks' time. Well, Mr. Galloway, with all respect, we, we cannot take anything China says as some sort of golden reference model. I'm not no, asking uh, you to do that. Don't do that. Look at the situation in China right now and the situation in your own country right now. We, 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 don't, we, we don't know what the situation in China is. Yes, China you do. Just, yeah, look, no, but, yes, you do. CNN, <laughs> MSNBC, all your television companies, all your newspapers are all over China. Mr. Galloway, they just kicked out a, a number of reporters very recently. They kicked out five from... Wall Street Journal reporters, but there's thousands of Western reporters in China, thousands of them. Well, I mean, I'm just saying that this gives us insight to the sort of operating environment that journalists have to work with in China. No, no, no they, they, they kicked out the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, journalists for insulting the country, and the United States kicked out the same number of 
Chinese journalists. So let's park yeah, that. The, that. That's a that's no, uh, that's I, a digression. I, the I, situation agree, in though. China is that the death rate is absolutely under control. In the United States, it is absolutely out of control. These two well, okay, facts then, cannot be disputed. Okay, well, I, I agree. Look, then we're talking about administration, not hospitals. And, and I, you know, administration-wise, look, there's some really, I have some big questions here. I don't understand why in this age of modern digital communications, why the President of the United States cannot have 50 governors on the phone, on some sort of video conferencing, every day for half an hour. Because we, we had a situation, we had a case now where the governor of North Carolina, I don't know if he was being sincere or not, just recently, last week, this week, mentioned that he didn't even know that this virus was so contagious. And he was just beginning to, you know, start yeah, to execute did, very... Did say that. I, I saw him uh, say it. Listen, exactly. Adil, so, I mean, Adil, it's been a pleasure to yeah. disagree with you. I need to press on. Thanks very much indeed for that call from Oregon. Uh, GDNPB says, if it wasn't for my youngest 11-year-old boy, I would see no real reason to go along with this new heading of the world. And Psychedelicid says the Queen's speech was recorded in 1971. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't see her speech because we were competing with her for audience. Our audience went up when she was on the television. Sorry, ma'am. Uh, Juan Polenas, rock and roll, says, Mr. George, this coronavirus in war, they are men make for profit, not for freedom. And JJ says, if this pandemic lasts a long time, the United States will become the most fascist nation in the world, even stealing from poor countries for their own welfare. I must say that the nadir of NATO was surely reached this week when Turkey, France, Sweden, the United States, were all stealing medical cargo bound for each other. In fact, Donald Trump actually said, we need these masks, we can't let other people have them. So much for solidarity. Let's take a quick break and Red Ken, the first and finest mayor of London, is up next. Now, Ken Livingston was the first, I think undoubtedly the finest, though to be fair, there hasn't been much competition. Uh, he was the mayor of London that most people associate with, identify as the mayor. A lot of people think he still is the mayor and wonder why things have gone to pot. Uh, but uh, Ken Livingston, like me, uh, was forced out of the Labour Party, me by Tony Blair, Ken Livingston by Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, he was a casualty, uh, like many others, like Chris Williamson and others, of the period in which Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party. At least I can say that the guy who expelled me went on to kill a million people. Uh, but he's back. Mr Blair is undoubtedly back. At least that's my view. Let's see if it's Ken's. Ken Livingstone, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. Again, it's been a while. Uh, Ken, Good evening. Uh, am I right? Is uh, Keir Starmer Tony Blair without the laughs? No, no. Keir Starmer's genuinely Labour. I mean, if I was still in the Labour Party, I would have voted for him because I think he's the person most likely to defeat Boris Johnson at the general election in five years' time. And, I mean, if you look at his, his history, a normal 
working class background. I mean, when he was a student at uni, he was in left-wing groups and so on. I mean, when he got the Labour nomination to stand for Parliament um, in Holborn, uh, one of the first things he did, he came up and saw me and had a chat about what he could learn about, you know, how to be an MP, draw on my experience and so on. So I think he's absolutely genuinely Labour and under his Labour government, uh, the position of working class and middle class families would dramatically improve, like they did under the Attlee government after the Second World War. Why is Tony Blair and his friends uh, dancing with delight then at Keir Starmer's victory? Well, because uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey didn't win and they were really scared that, you know, there'd be another Corbyn lefty um, running uh, the, the Labour Party. But I just think, you know, whilst I'm, you know, I, I agree with all her policies and so on, I mean, when I'm looking at you know, who you select for a Labour leader, I want someone who can defeat the Tories. Back in 1980, when the Labour Party had to choose between the lovely lefty Michael Foote and the old right-winger um, Dennis Healy. I actually supported Dennis Healy because although I really love Michael Foote, I agree with all his policies, I knew he could never win. And I would rather see a, a more centrist Labour government um, than a, a ghastly Tory government in power. You think he'll let you back in the Labour Party? I, I think, I mean, don't get me, I'm 74. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to be still alive by the time he's Prime Minister. I, basically, I mean, when I lost the election to Boris back in 2012, since then, I've been retired. I've been the house husband, looking after the kids, doing the shopping, things like that. I mean, and so all this hysteria you had with the media whipped up about anti-Semitism and so on. I think they just worried that I might be a dreadful lefty influence on a Jeremy Corbyn government. Well, of course, on that subject, uh, uh, he's acted very, very quickly. In fact, his first act uh, was to write to the Board of Deputies uh, of <clears throat> British Jews, who uh, played a, a significant role in your uh, being pushed out of the Labour Party perhaps still more in Chris Williamson's case. Uh, he's basically told the uh, supporters of Israel in Britain uh, that he's their man, hasn't he? And that he'll be taking action against people like you, even though you're already out. I don't think he said anything about me, but clearly, I mean, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader, he was, his problem was, I mean, he had a general secretary, um, Ian McNichol, who was totally hostile to him. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was totally opposed to Ian McNichol suspending me from the Labour Party, but McNichol just ignored him. And when you've seen, there was that BBC programme about anti-Semitism, Labour Party, Ian McNichol was just lying all the way through it. And so I think literally that was Jeremy's problem. He inherited a, a party machine run by, I mean, committed old Blairites and so on, who did everything to undermine him. And they whipped up this stuff about anti-Semitism. As soon as Jeremy got rid of McNichol and got in a decent general secretary. They did a really good crackdown on this. They found that out of every 2,000 Labour Party members, about one had tweeted something anti-Semitic. They were suspended or expelled. There is not a problem of endemic anti-Semitism in the well, Labour Party. that's not Party. what Keir Starmer says. Uh, he uh, again <laughs> apologised, said he was going to pull this uh, these poisonous weeds uh, out of the ground. He said that the mm. party had been shamed by uh, anti-Semitism. He said that mm. just today. 
Yeah, he's clearly got to, you know, deal with this issue and remove it. Because if you look back at the general election um, last year, I mean, anti-Semitism seemed to dominate so much of it. All these vicious allegations against Jeremy Corbyn. I remember reading an editorial in the Jewish Chronicle which said Jeremy Corbyn was the worst racist of modern times, worse than the National Front and the BNP. I mean, it's also completely over the top. I've known Jeremy for 45 years. I've never heard him say anything racist, anti-Semitic or even sexist. Now, uh, what about the shadow cabinet so far, Ken? You probably know more than me as I've been in the studio. Uh, but uh, it looks like uh, the, the people who uh, departed uh, Jeremy Corbyn's front bench are pretty largely back again. Uh, zombies, the return of the undead. Is that thrilling you so far? Well, I think Keir Starmer's clearly going to put together a broad coalition. There'll be people from the left, people from the right of the party. I mean, he's going to try and unite the party after all this division of recent years. And, I mean, none of this is particularly easy. I mean, when, when I became the leader of the, the Greater London Council, I mean, I had a completely left-wing administration. There were no right-wingers in it at all. That was a mistake. You've got to actually reflect the balance of opinion in the party. And what, I, what strikes me about the appointments Keir Starmer's made, while I wouldn't agree with the politics of all of them, I mean, broadly, they are competent. Uh, they're the sort of people that look like they could run a Labour government. Now, uh, let me finally ask you the question we've asked on our poll. Will Sir Keir Starmer lead Labour to power? You're safe. Oh, that's why I would support him. I mean, I think... Of all the three candidates, I mean, literally, he's the one most likely to defeat Boris Johnson and end what will be the, a, a ghastly five years. Well, I think you should clip this interview and put it in the post with an application form to Sir Keir Starmer. I think you'll be <laughs> pleasantly surprised. Ken Livingston, <laughs> thank you very much indeed Cheers. for joining Bye. us on the mother of all talk shows. On that poll, by the way, will Sir Keir Starmer lead Labour to power? A, yes, 17%. B, no, 83%. Or tell me what you think about Keir Starmer in the comments. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The moment is made for the moat medic, Dr. Ranjit Brar, who is a vascular surgeon, as well as a good friend and comrade of mine. Uh, but he doesn't speak for the NHS, of course. He's speaking purely in a personal capacity. But my goodness, does he speak some sense? And we've enjoyed his contributions over these last dreadful weeks. Dr. Ranjit, thank you very much indeed for joining us again. Um, Summarise, if you would, this point. Italy, France, Spain, death rate going down several days in a row. Britain, death rate going up every day. Discuss. 
Thanks, George. Pleasure to be with you again. Um, you're right, George. We are progressing rapidly. Uh, my brother sent me a little graph. Uh, he said a number of exponential um, graphs that we've all been looking at against time is also going up exponentially. I'm afraid to say we're still very much in a phase of ascendancy, both in the world and within the UK. Uh, looking at the world cases, and we know, of course, these are the tip of the iceberg and only represented tested data, and perhaps we'll come back to that point in a second. But we've gone over one and a quarter million confirmed cases in the world. Now, vast majority of those now are in the United States of America, who themselves have a third of a million. But in the United, in the United Kingdom, we have over, 50, well, we have 50,000 cases, of whom we know that 5,000 have died, and that still represents um, a very large mortality figure. Um, we've said for a little while that we've been probably two weeks behind uh, Italy in terms of our curve, and despite social distancing, which you know the population are doing their best to comply with in difficult circumstances, where economically many are challenged and unable to fully comply with that. Um, increasingly hard line put down by the government, um, numbers are still rising. And we've seen record numbers of deaths over the last two days, um, on some days surpassing, as you say, France, surpassing Italy, uh, surpassing Spain. So it's a very worrying time for our health service. And we're really feeling that strain on the front line. Yes, I mean, I'm seeing videos of uh, people breaking down uh, coming off the front line after their shifts. Uh, a number of your colleagues uh, have actually perished. Uh, in some cases, uh, it's said that they perished because the personal protective equipment had not been uh, made available to them. I saw a missive on Twitter, I think, today uh, from a nurse who says that she's working on a COVID ward and all she's got is, uh, is a, a plastic apron and a paper mask. Uh, this is intolerable, surely. It's an embarrassment, George. Um, uh, I was contacted by Press TV to, co to come on the air and talk to them about the fact that actually doctors across the country have been asked to take down social media posts. Everyone's on social media these days, including doctors, and they've been posting about their frustration and annoyance um, with the lack of PPE, but also the inadequate um, protocols for PPE. And in several weeks now, it must be three weeks ago, we discussed the fact that China had published in, in English, so not for themselves, but for our benefit in English, the summation of their experience uh, in dealing with the Wuhan pandemic, the Wuhan epidemic rather, um, which included organization of hospital and appropriate levels of PPE. But I'm afraid we've been very slow, partly through a sense of uh, cultural superiority, partly because of a hostility of our, of our ruling class, which filters down through our academia and even our medicine, that we don't take China seriously as a purveyor of good information, good data, good quality products. In a way, China's far surpassed that point. They've proved that just by being the workshop of the world and being and manufacturing those products. But still, there's a certain reluctance to take on board the lessons. I think. That will not be the case at the end of this pandemic. I think my own colleagues are increasingly looking towards the information gained from China. I, I have a sister-in-law who works in the States. She told me there was a, a mass call of 9,000, conference call of 9,000 of their top 
medical personnel between themselves and China in order to learn from China's experience. But I'm afraid, due to the NHS being run down, due to our protocols being update, uh, out of date and very slow to catch up, due to our managers not being clinical, not realizing exactly what we're facing, uh, it, it has been an embarrassment. My, my, my wife, who's currently on maternity leave, but is also a surgeon at a local hospital in London, has gone to the point, she's been so worried, of coordinating donations. And these donations have been coming, and it's heartwarming to see how the British population want to help and value the NHS. But donations from our children's school of goggles that can be used at the NHS and from a local builder of the full protective equipment that they use for spraying can be used by the NHS staff. So there is still a desperate shortage. I, I saw a press piece that Virgin had flown back a whole bunch of uh, protective equipment donated by China. So China are trying to help us. Virgin, of course, have their own axe to grind. They're using it as a PR statement in order to try and encourage us, the public, i.e. The, the taxpayer, which will be the, the poor once again bailing out the rich to give them a massive seven billion to bail out their industry, which I'm opposed to. So there, there's a conflation there. But I'm afraid to say some hospitals, the best hospitals, you know, the, the, the biggest teaching hospitals, not, not exclusively, but some of them are doing their best to put in place modern PP and, and acquire it. There's a, a large number of interfaces, and particularly if you go into secondary care, tertiary care, GP services, care homes, there's an almost total absence of adequate provision. And of course, frontline staff, we're increasingly realized, doesn't just mean people within the NHS. Frontline staff means logistics, it means lorries, it means people in the food industry, people in factories that are still operation operational. And all of these people have been failed in terms of the protective, uh, protective equipment that they have been given and their inability in their daily work routines to actually adequately self-isolate. And all of that, of course, will have an impact upon the numbers who are dying. And there's, maybe I'll leave it there for now, George, but we can perhaps return to the question of data because there still is a, an undercurrent of people who don't seem to believe that there's a genuine reason. And despite, I think, a mishandling from our government, uh, which filters down, and despite the NHS being very run down, we do have to recognize it's a very real situation, and it is in the interest of all working people to take it very seriously. Yes, uh, I, I made the point earlier on your last point about the PPE uh, that my, my mother of 85 has had to, uh, so therefore in a high-risk uh, group, uh, with one or two, not serious, but one or two underlying uh, health problems. She's had to shut the door on the uh, nurse and the social care that came to her every other day uh, because none of them have got a, so much as a mask or a glove uh, or had a test. So she has to make a choice uh, between being in total self-isolation, even my sister can't she has to leave the groceries on the door, uh, being in total self-isolation, or let uh, healthcare workers in that don't have any protection and may very well, uh, God forbid, kill her. Uh, the social care, Cinderella, is even worse, actually, than the NHS. It is, and uh, not only has social care been uh, means tested and run down. So it's been a, a deep source of embarrassment to me. 
as someone who really values the ability to treat anyone who turns up at the door to give them the best care we can and never have to charge them, never have to ask them about their personal circumstances, whether they can afford to pay. It's a deep sense of shame that patients have been had delayed discharge from hospital for the last many years, easily five to 10 years, while we go through a process of means testing them, seeing what health, you know, what, what social services and social care they can receive at home. And having got a patient through the worst of their illness, we're unable to put them very often in a position where they're actually able to carry on, continue to recover and look after themselves at home. And I'm afraid to say that the legislation that's put in place uh, around COVID-19, which was put, don't forget, before any reasonable health preparations to take care of staff or patients was put in place, now, also doctor, doctor, that, doctor, let me, give you, let me interrupt you uh, to give you some breaking news. Uh, it's been reported that Boris Johnson has been taken into hospital, having tested positive with COVID-19 last Friday. Um, this is quite serious news. Uh, talk to us about what, what would be happening to Boris Johnson right now. He's being, he has been taken into hospital. What's the first thing that will happen? Be interesting to know which hospital. Very often, it's St. Thomas's Hospital that um, parliamentarians go to, um, but that may not be that may not be the case. Um, one would have to be totally objective uh, and look after him based on his medical needs. I can only presume that the symptom that would have sent him into hospital was either persistent fever and inability to feed himself and he needs some fluids and maybe that he needs some oxygen if he's short of breath. I obviously have no information and I'm simply giving you a, a, a likely scenario. Um, were he to need oxygenation in the first instance, that would be non-invasive, but should it get worse enough, it's not impossible that he should have a recourse to or need a, a ventilator. Um, ah, well, now we come to ventilators. Why did we not have enough why have we taken so long to get more it seems incredible to me that uh, that you know people can get tests ocado bought tens of thousands of tests for their employees um, people in other countries are buying huge numbers of ventilators some of the very poorest communities in the world like Gaza, for example, are actually making their own ventilators. Why are we so desperately short of them, doctor? Um, our rate of ICU beds is, is very low. It's historically been very low. Um, I told you before, it's not an unusual experience for me if I'm operating on a patient who will need to go to the intensive care. We have to wait till quite late in the day to find out whether that bed is available or not. There is not really sufficient capacity for our everyday needs. Now, this obviously, this crisis, this epidemic, represents a massive uh, increase in the demand for ventilators. But it's true to say that there were not enough anyway for our everyday needs. And this is, we've reached the point of pretty much maximal uh, occupancy of ventilators, maximal occupancy of uh, NHS beds, and that's despite the fact that we have stopped elective surgery and run down and discharge, run down services that are deemed non-essential and non-related to COVID, and are doing our very best to avoid other people coming into hospital. So it shows you that there is an un overall 
reduction in capacity of beds. Now that's gone along with, as we've talked about before, the privatization initiatives, the redevelopment of hospitals with ever fewer number of beds, the selling off of cottage, cottage hospitals and land, and the PFI initiative. So all of this is designed to push the NHS in the direction of privatization and insurance-based model uh, akin to the United States. It's very interesting. I saw a um, uh, an, an, a Stanford-trained uh, U.S. doctor. Uh, again, he's he's not an infectious disease specialist, but he, he's very active on social media um, and actually issuing almost a manifesto demanding that this crisis was showing that their insurance-based system was not fit for purpose. They had had doctors who had demanded better PPE and spoken out about the lack of PPE in the states being sacked. And the medical community are up in arms that they are being run as a massive industry whose object is to make money and not care for patients and physicians are suffering. And really, this is the situation that the NHS is being driven towards and is already showing signs of. But that'll, have to, but that'll have to stop now, uh, Doctor. Uh, the Tories could not dare now propose further privatisation of the National Health Service. In fact, it'll be very difficult for them to resist demands for the renationalisation of some of the privatisation of the NHS. They cannot go towards an American system that is collapsing in front of our eyes. And even Donald Trump is talking about bringing in an NHS. Our ruling class is, um, is very cunning, George. And there's no question. I mean, even the Financial Times is printing articles in which they're saying, you know, the, if you like, a peak globalization is over. Yeah. That there's no way that the population of the world will accept the continuing concentration of wealth in ever fewer hands and the marginalization and pauperization of vast swathes of the world's population. Well, that's all, that's already happened. Um, but our government are very careful to preserve the elements of private medicine, to talk about buying in services, buying in tests, buying in beds from the private sector, buying in ventilators, buying in new ventilators, commissioning industry to help, to, make, to, to throw huge amounts of money at failing businesses and industry, failing because they've impoverished their market and their market is no longer able to buy you know, the products that they make. So an inherent crisis which has been happening since the 1840s and in ever-increasing numbers, and we've never really come out of the crisis of 2009. So that's the economic situation we're facing. Our government is very keen to avoid talk of privatization, to avoid talk of requisitioning, and they're throwing huge amounts at, at industry in order to try and paper over the cracks. It is up to us. It is up to us. Keir Starmer, recently been talking about him on the show is very recently come uh, it's been announced that he's won the labor election he's already saying how has he pitched himself he wants to form a national unity government he wants to enforce stricter measures on the people to make sure they stay at home so shifting the blame is already a sign of shifting the blame away from the government and with the cooperation of a new labor type administration shifting the blame for the death toll onto the behavior of British citizens. Of course, if we tested adequately, if we had taken appropriate measures to, to find out who had the virus and to stop it spreading, we wouldn't be in this situation. The economic crisis is not caused by people's behavior. It's not caused by the virus. It's caused by an inherent problem of our economic system. And I'm afraid to say that the new Labour administration show every sign of 
joining with the Tory administration in order to change that narrative and do their best to preserve the status quo. It will be... Well, I, I, I don't know about that. He's got the support of Red Ken Livingston, uh, surprisingly, uh, on the show this evening. Dr. Ranjit, thank you, as always, for a wonderful tour. Prime Minister Boris Johnson being admitted to hospital for tests 10 days after testing positive for coronavirus, Downing Street has said. And Mr. Johnson continues to have persistent symptoms of coronavirus. It was described as a precautionary step taken on the advice of his doctor. The Prime Minister remains in charge of the government, eh? And urged people to follow its social distancing advice, like he didn't do. Well, look, I'm very sorry uh, that he is ill. I'm even more sorry that his partner is ill because she is pregnant, as indeed is my own wife. So I'm very sorry for what's happened to the couple. I'm very sorry that Boris Johnson's ended up in hospital. But you can't run the government from hospital. That would be extremely disruptive to the hospital, as well as being unlikely to be the best form of governance for Britain at this time of national emergency. So I urge you, Prime Minister, to reconsider that stance. Sky News have got this. Prime Minister Boris Johnson admitted to hospital for tests. It's said that he still has persistent symptoms and a high temperature. The admission is said to be precautionary rather than an emergency measure. The Prime Minister is still leading the government. Well, old-fashioned, me, I just think that is uh, ridiculous. Now, we're back with the Hall of Fame and the Wall of Shame. The latest entrant to the Hall of Fame is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who was assassinated 52 years ago yesterday. It wasn't his most famous speech, but it was the most prophetic. I have been to the mountaintop. I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. Less than 24 hours later, 52 years ago yesterday, Dr. Martin Luther King was killed by an assassin's bullet in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm not going to name the foul killer in the tribute to the man he killed. The Reverend King had come to Memphis to support a sanitation workers strike. Important point that. In a speech to a mass crowd in a local church, surveying great times in history, including Egypt, the Roman Empire, the Renaissance, and the American Civil War. King said he would be happy if God allowed him to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century. It wasn't to be. He died aged just 39. Five years earlier, King's most famous speech, one of the most powerful ever delivered, spoke of his dreams. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis 
of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Much changed in the years following his death, although much has remained the same. Dr. King was born Michael King Jr. in Atlanta, Georgia in 1929. His father, Michael, was a preacher who in 1934 visited Berlin and the sites associated with the Protestant Reformation leader, Martin Luther. While there, he witnessed firsthand the rise of Nazism. On his return, he called himself Martin Luther King Sr. with his son as Jr. It wasn't until Jr. was 28 that he formally had his birth certificate altered to his new name. At school, Dr. King won first prize in a speaking contest in Georgia. In his speech, he stated, Black America still wears chains. The finest Negro is at the mercy of the meanest white man. On the ride home to Atlanta by bus, he and his teacher were ordered by the driver to stand so a white passenger could sit down. King initially refused but complied after his teacher told him that he would be breaking the law if he did not submit. King said that he was the angriest he had ever been in his life. Although as a young man he was doubtful about Christianity, he later felt the call and studied for the ministry. King married Corietta Scott on June 18, 1953 on the lawn of her parents' house and they became the parents of four children. From 1955, King was involved in a series of boycotts and protests against prejudice. He organized and led marches for black people's rights to vote and against segregation. He was unwavering in his belief in nonviolence, which brought him into conflict with other black leaders. He was one of the organizers of a massive quarter of a million march on Washington in 1963, which Malcolm X called the farce on Washington. The Nation of Islam forbade its members from attending that march. However, it was a resounding success. It made specific demands, an end to racial segregation in public schools, meaningful civil rights laws, including a law prohibiting racial discrimination in employment, protection of civil rights workers, from police brutality and a minimum hourly rate of the equivalent of $17 an hour today. It was here in Washington that day that King delivered his I have a dream speech. King continued to protest against the Vietnam War, an end to housing segregation and for a black emancipation law in 1968 he organized the Poor People's Campaign to address issues of economic justice. He traveled the country to assemble a multiracial army of the poor that would march on Washington to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience at the Capitol until Congress created an economic bill of rights for all poor Americans. And it was on this day in 1968 that he was murdered which set off a chain of violent protests in dozens of cities. Martin Luther King is our latest and inspiring entrant into the Hall of Fame. I just want to 
at this. The critical mass which led to the circumstances in which King had to be slain was that he moved from being only a civil rights leader. He moved even from being a civil rights leader and an anti-Vietnam War leader. He was there for the Memphis strike of refuse workers. It was when he made the triptych demanding civil rights for black people, demanding an end to the Vietnam War, and demanding economic justice for the working class of all races and backgrounds. That triptych tripped the switch and caused the murder of this great man. Because the confluence of these three great issues in 1968 was more than the state which had bugged him and burgled him and may even have been involved in murdering him, they could take him no longer. The night before his death, Dr. King said this, some men do things because they're profitable. Some men do things because they're popular. I do things because they are right. Martin Luther King, welcome to our Hall of Fame. Let's take a call from David in Nottingham. Go ahead, David. Hi, George. How are you? By the grace of God, um, I'm still good. Thanks. Good. Uh, I've, I've got um, some qualms with these um, COVID. Uh, I know. I know people are dying from it. I'm. I'm, I'm not denying that. Yeah. Some um, of them are but, friends um, of mine, so don't deny it, please. Yeah. No. 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 I'm not denying it. Um, but I think the numbers are being manipulated. Um, they are. They're being so manipulated well. down, not up. No, no, up. P Professor Walter Ricciardi from um, Italy, from the Health Ministry, he says that they're being too overgenerous because the way deaths are reported in Italy, um, most people who are dying, they've got two or three underlying health issues. Yeah. Um, most but we dealt with that last week, David. David, 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 we dealt with that last week. We had an eminent doctor on last week, and he said, if you have got coronavirus, that has catalyzed your death. That's like no, saying it might have added to it. If someone's 85, no, and it's catalyzed four, it. No, no, it, no, it has catalyzed it. It has catalyzed well, well, it. Why are you in denial about this, David? Why because, is it so important to you because, to deny why, this? Why collapse? Because the economy has been collapsed, and why? Who's going to benefit? Who follow the money? Everyone's so going to have you, to liquidise the assets. So you want to raise capital? You, you want everybody to go back to work and stop the social distancing? Do you? so that the capitalists can make a bit more money, do you? No, because all that's going to happen, the capitalists, because we, we private businesses, they're all going to have to raise capital because they're going bankrupt. They're going to have to liquidise their assets, and who's going to buy it? Well, the, the why are you crying about that? Why what? are you crying about that? Are you a big capitalist, David? No. Well, why are you crying about it, then? Because they're going to buy all the assets off the, off the little well, people. Well, uh, capitalism will continue working until a majority of us decide we want a different system. I'm just wondering why a guy like you, and there are many like you, why? has I such a drive, 
has George, such a drive George, to say you know what, the BBC, that the somebody's old mother... Re- listen, my friend died yesterday. Basim al-Masri, may God no, have that, mercy. That, may God have mercy on his soul. Now, he had underlying uh, health problems. Nice. But he also had COVID-19. And it was the COVID-19 that killed him. Why do you want to deny that? What, no, no, what do you gain? How does, on, it, how does it butter any... In? Yeah. How does it butter any of your parsnips to deny that my friend died of coronavirus 19? He didn't die of, he died with. Why is that important to you? Why? Because if I'm dying of lung cancer, right, and I have COVID, does not mean that I've died of COVID. It means I've died of lung cancer. It means you died now of COVID. No, You might have died later. That's why lung cancer. Well, you didn't listen and if to I'm the doctor. You didn't innings. listen to the doctor last week, then. I listened to all doctors. Well, we had one of the country's finest on last week, in which he patiently explained how you're talking out of your rectum. Now, get no, out of my not. sight. Sean is in Stevenage. Let's hear from him. Sean. <laughs> Hello, George. What? Why do I always get through to you when, when you've just exploded at somebody? <laughs> <laughs> it's just your luck. Because we're here, lad. Because we're here. Go uh, ahead, Sean. Uh, Dr. Ranji, what a star. Yeah, he uh, is, yeah. His comments are spot on. And I'm picking up on his comment about the government are trying to shift blame from their policies over the years, and they're trying to shift blame onto people n- not obeying the, the, the lockdown and, and this sort of thing, which we can all have a, a, a point of view on how, how serious that should be, etc. My point is this. When this is all over, I propose that the ministers, the managers, the chief operating officers, the CEOs of all these companies involved in healthcare, and over the decades that have chipped away privatised, closed wards, got rid of beds, and are responsible for not having this PPE here, they should be prosecuted under the Health and Safety at Work Act and embarrassed out of their jobs. They should well, be that, in the dock for uh, it. That's very powerful, and uh, I, I support prosecutions uh, in certain cases. Uh, but the first thing we have to demand, and we must get it, is a full legal public inquiry into the state of Britain's preparedness or the lack of it for the health emergency and everything should be on the table including Absolutely. including the inquiry's right to recommend prosecution uh, of individuals to demand and receive evidence to Absolutely. access uh, papers this is and that's why I'm so worried about Keir Starmer uh, running to be allowed into a national unity coalition government uh, with uh, Boris Johnson. I'm so worried about that because I think it will blunt the edge of the opposition's demand, and it should be their demand for such a wide-ranging public inquiry, Sean. Yeah, he's been put there to blunt anything like this. This is what happens with all these public inquiries. Well, I don't know about put there, Sean. I mean, he he got 57% of the votes. It was yeah, all these uh, all these ex-Corbynistas that voted for him. People like Ken Livingstone. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they voted electronically, a bit like in America with the Sanders no, votes that magically disappear. Well, <laughs> I, I doubt that. I doubt that. Uh, there's I, not, couldn't there's go, not, I don't know anything about there's it. There's not as queer as folk. And, uh, and there was Ken Livingstone now bigging up uh, Sir Keir. Listen, Sean, thanks a lot. I'm sorry for the timing. 
uh, of your call. Sylvia is in New Zealand. Let's hear from her. Go ahead, Sylv. Oh, hello, George. Uh, look, I'm reading from New Zealand. I'm an Australian. Okay. I'm actually ringing about Julian Assange. Yes, and go ahead. Uh, the problem for him with coronavirus, he has a serious lung disease. Uh, it has been requested to the government that he be given a release, temporary release, so that his life is not under threat. The government has uh, answered by saying that uh, he is not serving a custodial sentence, so they have no reason to release him. So he's going to be allowed to rot or, or get a, a, have a terminal disease and die while we all sit back, Australia... Uh, Britain sit back hoping, in my opinion, that he will die and that his problem will be right from the board. That's, I guess, all I have to say about well, it. Well, uh, it's not all. Uh, it's the best call of the night and delivered with great passion and highlighting uh, one of the most grotesque uh, statements I have ever seen from government. The, the meaning of what they said was that Julian cannot be released because he is not a criminal. All the criminals can be released, and many have already been, but because Julian has never been convicted, he cannot be released. So if Belmarsh is emptied of all the murderers, terrorists, rapists, grievous bodily harm, mutilators, if it's emptied of all of them, if they get all released because of the danger of them getting coronavirus, Julian will be the last man standing in Belmarsh Prison. I think we should because, also remember because today... He isn't, because sorry. he isn't a criminal. That's right. And just, I think, it needs people need to be reminded that it's 10 years today since the collateral damage film that, that Julian engineered... Uh, was shown to the world, and I think it's important for us all to remember that and what it ten means. Years, about right, the the ten years, you're right. It's the ten-year. It's the ten-year anniversary of uh, the uh, the the video and other uh, information that was released showing the United States committing an actual war crime on camera and murdering men and their children and. Journalists from Reuters, and yet not a single journalist in Britain in the mainstream media is lifting a finger to help Julian, who exposed the murder of their colleagues. Sylvia, thank you. A wonderful, wonderful call. Uh, Georgie, it says here, in Spalding. Go ahead, Georgie. Hello, George. It's me. It's Georgie. First of all, I want to say thank you for a brilliant show. And, thank you. Uh, I left the Labour Party yesterday. Blimey, it is really tricky to leave the Labour Party. I, I didn't realise that unless they suspend you or expel you. Um, and um, er, I've got a big apology to make to you. I have been very slow. I really feel I should have left when Chris Williamson was thrown under the bus, for want of a better phrase. Well, you um, know, it's hard to leave, Georgie. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, breaking up is hard to do and all that. Uh, I, yes, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't blame you for that. Well, yes, but I've been a bit of a moo about you as well. I, I've sort of said the Workers' Party was some sort of um, George Calloway fan club. Well, do you know what? Maybe I, I want to join it now, so... 
Okay, well, that's very kind of you, but I can't talk about that here. But it's very, no, very uh, kind. No, no, not at all. Don't apologise. Uh, and uh, I, hope, I hope we get together soon. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. And, you know, I, uh, I've just been such an idiot. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be polite. Um, I think the government is absolutely appalling. I knew that we weren't going to win. I knew Starmer was going to get there. And finally, the penny dropped. And even yesterday morning, I was like, no, no, stay in the party and fight. And it's like... I heard 30 seconds of um, Harmony Hairspray Man, and it was like, no, <laughs> get a grip. Do you know what I thought was the best comment I saw today, Georgie? Somebody yeah. said uh, that he looks like the kind of actor who would play a prime minister in a Spice Girls video 20 years ago. And I thought that was just absolutely perfect. Got to press on, Georgie. Ryan in Rochdale. Thank you. Ryan in Rochdale. Go ahead, Ryan. Yes, good. Thanks. Go ahead. Perfect. Well, basically, myself, I'm, uh, I'm uh, a Labour Party member, and I've been uh, a member of Labour Party since 2016. Um, I cancelled my direct debit today um, just because, um, like I said, I'm from Rochdale. Um, <clears throat> Jeremy Corbyn um, was probably the first politician in my lifetime to actually represent me and, and my views as a 25-year-old uh, male who's not come from the, you know, the, the best of backgrounds, um, um, actually listening to uh, his vision and the, the, the plan that he had for the country, um, you know, really inspired me. And, you know, I'm not sure where to go from um, this, because I'd have never voted for Tony Blair as long as I had a, a hole in my bottom. Um, and, and Keir Starmer just seemed... He's uh, Tony Blair without the laughs, uh, if you ask me. Ryan, I, I, I can't uh, advise you uh, here. Uh, contact me on Twitter. I'll definitely uh, do so. And I feel your pain and I hear it. But again, I've got to clear the lines because here's another legend. You wait ages for a legend and then two turn up on the same show. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Hi. Um, just, um, we haven't got much time. No. I, um, firstly, actually, I did like... Uh, your Hall of Fame is Martin Luther King. Yeah. Um, very, very good. Um, no, I'm, I'm really depressed because um, all this news is depressing, but I'm also ever so disappointed because of Keir Starmer's new cabinet, shadow cabinet, unlike Ken Livingstone. He and loves I it. Did, he thinks it's great. Well, I'm so surprised. I did want Richard Bergen to be the deputy. I wanted Rebecca Long-Bailey to be in there. And even Emily Thornbury instead of Lisa Nandy for Foreign Secretary. And Rachel Reese. No, no, no. I'm not happy. Um, well, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I saw the early uh, appointments. And it seemed to me the old Blairites being brought back from the black benches and new Blairites that never got the chance to vote for the Iraq War uh, put in uh, to supplement them. That's how it looked shaping up to me. Do you know, the only thing that I can think of at the moment that is going to give me some pleasure, apart from, I ought to read your book on, yeah. um, not your book, I mean the rugged, supposed philanthropist. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it might be a bit difficult, I don't know. Well, we're um, going to, look, we've run out of time. Uh, thanks, Norma, for the call, as always. Uh, we will return to the ragged trouser philanthropist. You can download it for free. 
in certain places. I'd prefer if you bought it, uh, but you can download it for free. Uh, so please do that because we will, as soon as we get the time to do it. I didn't even have the time this evening to introduce someone else to the wall of shame, but I will do next week. He needn't think he's gotten away with it. It's been marvellous uh, for me, I hope it was for you, and if it was, come back next week at the same time in the same place and bring another viewer, another listener with you. Thanks very much and go safely, stay healthy, and one day I hope we meet again in the fresh air rather than over the air.